Hey y'all, how's it going? I'm Scott. Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I know I sound really excited, don't I? Yay, it's the show! Today on the show, yeah, politics and foreign policies and stuff. You know, things like that. Um, today on the show, Mohammed Sahimi is going to talk about the defeat of the hardliners in the elections in Iran. Very interesting stuff. Uh, I guess I didn't even really realize what an expert he was on, you know, the internal national government politics in Iran. I knew he was good on the nuclear issue. Great on it. Um, but yeah, he really is. And so we have one interview like this about, hey, these elections are coming up. Well, now we've got the results and the results are the good guys won. Well, the less worse. We're talking about politicians. Uh, the less worse won. And so what does it all mean? I don't know, but Mohammed Sahimi's going to tell me and you get to listen into that. So that'll be good. Uh, also, Peter Van Buren is going to be here. Uh, like Marco Rubio, I've been, uh, not like he has been doing, but like the subject of Marco Rubio, I've been ignoring the issue of Hillary's emails, mostly because it just kind of sounds on the face of it like one of her lesser felonies, you know what I mean? Eh, emails. I don't think the government should exist, so what do I care if their secrets, you know, aren't stored properly or whatever, I don't know. Uh, but the thing of it is... The hypocrisy of it all. Chelsea Manning is sitting in the brig for being a hero. Um, Jeffrey Sterling is sitting in the brig for, I don't know if you'd call it heroism, but he's convicted. I don't know if he did it or not, but he's convicted of leaking a very important story to a very important reporter. The Merlin story to James Risen about how the CIA, huh, oops, gave almost finished nuclear weapons blueprints to the Iranians, which they promptly threw in the trash, smelling an entrapment job uh, right off the bat. Uh, they were not entrapped by it, but the CIA did give them virtually complete plans for how to make nuclear weapons in order to bust them holding it. Brilliant. And anyway, he's in prison. And I think I mentioned this on the show. I think it was Judge Napolitano who mentioned a, a lot of examples of little people. An ensign, I think it was an ensign in the Navy, who took a selfie to send to his girlfriend. But there was out of focus behind him the display screen uh, uh, at a radar station. Well, he went to prison. He went to military prison. Obama has prosecuted more government employees under the Espionage Act. Which, you know, you would think on the face of it, by the name of it, is about espionage, right? Stealing secrets on behalf of a foreign power, right? But no. They use the Espionage Act over anybody. Whether it's uh, an American hero like Chelsea Manning trying to bring the truth to the American people and the people of the world about what the hell's going on around here. Or whether it's an accident, you know, or a, you know, a careless mistake, like an out-of-focus picture of a radar screen on a battleship somewhere. They'll nail you to the wall. Well, anyway. Uh, so that's the thing of it. 
that's the only part of it that really bothers me is, of course, you know, for the likes of Hillary Clinton, the common understanding, it certainly is mine, is that there is no rule of law. It's a political decision whether criminal laws apply to her, not a, you know, just regular decision that a prosecutor would make or whether they think they can get away with locking you up, which is how every other prosecutorial decision in America is made, except when somebody's really rich or, you know, related to the judge, <laughs> something like that, or they're a senator. Or that level of... Uh, Ted Stevens was prosecuted, but that was a very special case. Basically, all of them have complete immunity to commit any crime in the world that they want, and especially she's running for president right now. What are they going to do, indict her, really? I mean, they could, I guess. But I I just don't see it. But here's the thing of it, though. I've been reading the judge, and the judge, yeah, he seems pretty sure that uh, there's some criminal charges at least available here. And I may have misunderstood because I did turn up the volume late. So I may have, you know, missed the first part of the statement that would have changed the context. But I'm pretty sure that I heard uh, Judge Napolitano on Fox News this morning say there is a grand jury looking at this. Now, that may not be correct because the uh, Washington Post story that's brand new out last night, that they have given immunity to the uh, young staffer who set up her home server, um, that, well, I guess that may or may not coincide with a grand jury, but in the Washington Post case, they said there's no indication of a grand jury. Although those things are secret, so, yeah, but I think the Washington Post would have heard about it. If there was a grand jury on this, they would know. So, you know, I don't know how far the thing's going to go, but I do know that it's uh, important, or I, I realized that there was a whole other level of this yesterday when I read Peter Van Buren's entry on the antiwar.com blog, Intel Agencies, Clinton emails match top secret documents. I don't want to get too much further into it than that at this point, but uh, Peter Van Buren, former State Department official, will be coming up on the show uh, to explain this a very interesting blog entry at antiwar.com slash blog uh, on the emails case. And then Nick Giambruno is going to be here. You might remember a week ago we had Jason Ditz on the show to talk about negative interest rates and the abolition of cash and uh, all this kookiness. Well, same interview again, only instead of Jason, it's going to be Nick Giambruno, who's, uh, he works with Doug Casey and is an investment advisor and has been paying close attention to this and has written a couple of things that... Uh, yeah, I'd have you look at that I enjoyed reading this morning. Oh, man. What a mess. I don't know. Yeah, I guess that's the whole thing of it. That's the whole thing of all of this stuff. The people with all the power, it doesn't matter how crazy they are. It doesn't matter how obviously nefarious all their activities are. We just don't have a say in it. Abolish cash? Well, those things are decided at secret meetings in Davos, Switzerland, or God knows where. Might as well be the skull and bones with the swords and torches and dark cloaks in the shadows. You and I sure as hell don't get a say in it. Abolish cash. Uh, make every single transaction, every trade, should be a, a matter of every person's permanent record forever, right? Like buying or selling anything, providing a good or service is a crime, 
<laughs> has to go on your record. How is it that you're using your freedom? You must be accountable even when there's no suspicion that anything is wrong at all. We're just making sure. I don't know, but they let me drive to work and back every day, so I think I pretty much feel free. And there's a lot of great TV shows this season. <laughs> I'm not sure how you reason this stuff. I'm trying. All right. Anyway, um, so in politics, uh, Romney gave his big speech against Trump. And I think I've decided that I'm a Trump truther, that the GOP establishment, they must have made a deal with Trump that, OK, we'll support you. And the best way we can support you is to attack you all day. And I'm only kidding because, of course, the real answer is they really don't know how much we hate them. You know, wasn't I telling you guys about that thing I read at the National Review? Yeah, I mentioned this on the show at the National Review where they were saying, well, you know, the rank and file, they're just so angry that the Republicans weren't able to stop Obamacare. But, geez, they really tried. Guys, don't be mad. And and, uh, you know, revealing, of course, their complete and total unwillingness to grapple with the American people in general's displeasure with them over the Bush years. Not just their failures to stop Obama, but the eight years of Bush, of war and recession and lost liberty. Who, us? The Republicans all cry. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. It's libertarian foreign policy, mostly. Of course, there's always an election or two or ten going on, so there's some politics-type coverage on the show, too. Um, oh, I just wanted to point out one thing. Uh, this should have been obvious to you conservatives all along, uh, but it's absolutely undeniable now, isn't it, how much they hate you. Your leaders, conservatives. Um, Romney, in, I mean, uh, <laughs> Donald Trump, Romney's old buddy. Uh, Donald Trump in these primaries and caucuses is winning as much as all of his competition combined. Not that I support him. I'm against him in every way. Said that all, you know, all this time. I'm not saying that. I'm just talking about the Republican Party leadership right now. Uh, their voters want him. And their answer to that is, screw you. We will do anything and everything we can, including announcing months in advance, that, damn it, they'll just rewrite the rules at the convention 
and appoint whoever they want. They'll just, no. Or they'll just run third party. Or they'll all just support Hillary Clinton because at least they can count on her to kill people all day, every day, which is, of course, their highest value. And their major concern about Donald is that he wants to knock the hell out of ISIS for a minute and then stop instead of staying everywhere forever. Um, but anyway, they're just telling the Republican voters, screw you, we hate you. Remember all those stupid lies we told you that you believed? Well, if that was enough to get you to understand just what contempt... We Republican uh, and conservative movement leaders hold you in. Here, screw your vote. You don't have a say. We will decide for you. Goldman Sachs has said that you can have their Trump. Cruz. Or you can have Netanyahu's choice, Rubio. Both of whom absolutely would be destined to lose to Hillary Clinton in the general. Who have no chance against her in the general whatsoever. Pretty glaring um, kind of, uh, I think, even to Romney, kind of omission with a big silence right where it went when he was saying, oh, look, in the polls say that Hillary Clinton will beat him. Well, they just barely say that, and he ain't even started going after her yet, dude. But those same polls, what do they say about Rubio's chances against her, Mitt? Yeah, that's what I thought. What a joke. And anyway, I just appreciate that when from time to time the leaders of the Republican Party, the Karl Roves, announce to the conservative rank and file how much they detest them. How unfortunate it is that they have to suffer the burden of pandering to them. Come on, I told you every line in the book that wasn't good enough for you. Where they cry. And I don't know, I guess the fun would be if maybe eventually you get sick of it. Maybe they did eventually get sick of it. I don't know. Um, anyway, important news. I read some stuff that said the ceasefire, I guess I don't know everything about it or where, but they said the ceasefire was actually holding in Syria and that um, virtually any tiny little militia outside of, um, and maybe even including Arar al-Sham, all the other you know very small so-called mythical moderate groups have laid down their guns, which is, I guess, you know, amounts to a few thousand men. But they're small groups. And then Arar al-Sham and I guess al-Nusra too seem to be taking a holiday. I guess we'll see what happens with that. And I admit I'm not all the way up to date on the latest going on with uh, al-Nusra and Arar al-Sham. And to what degree they're working together still or splitting off from each other. Uh, but at the same time, the YPG backed by Russia and America fighting against the Islamic State in the East, um, have been making some progress. And there's a, a town, I'm sorry, I forget the name of the damn thing. Um, this article is on the Turkish border. Um, I had the link here somewhere, man. There's a, there's a town 
uh, or two on the highway between Raqqa and Mosul in what used to be northern Iraq, now eastern Islamic State. And the YPG has been getting close to taking it. And I did see a guy on, uh, this is actually a very interesting episode of Crosstalk on uh, Russia Today that a friend sent me. Uh where uh, they were talking about, yeah, no, they're taking this town. And this is a major disruption against the Islamic State. So we'll see what happens after that. But, you know, I guess it is a race to Raqqa. I think it was that moon in, moon of Alabama, wouldn't it? Ah, oh, man, I'm sorry. I get it mixed up, all the stuff I've been reading. Um, I think it was that moon of Alabama um, where they had said that before. It's the race to Raqqa. Who, whose allies are going to make it? Is it going to be America's Kurds or Russia's Kurds or the Syrian army? And that kind of deal. I'm not sure. Um, and then... Um, so the the headlines here, though, Syrian Kurds over 200 killed in fighting with the Islamic State over Tel Abiyad, which this is on the Turkish border. YPG insists they retain control over the town. 200 people killed in the fighting there. 140 ISIS, 43 YPG, 23 civilians, it says. Um, and then in the northwest of Syria, near the Mediterranean... Syrian forces advance on strategic hill in the northwest. Hill overlooks key Al-Qaeda-held town of Jisr al-Shaghur. Where will you say that? Again, Nusra outside of the protection of the ceasefire. So maybe something big uh, fixing to happen there. And then um, on uh, the Iraqi side of the equation... In Eastern Islamic State, major operation is now underway in Samarra, which is on the road between Mosul and Baghdad. That's 131 killed in Iraq just yesterday. And um, Italy announced 130 troops will be deployed to protect Italian personnel at the Mosul Dam. So maybe somebody is working on getting that damn dam fixed. But uh, like we talked about on the show yesterday, one of the major doors, the gates for the water, is jammed shut, and they can't get it open. And if they don't get it open quick, it could lead to a major catastrophe. Um, airstrikes near Camp Spicher killed 17 militants. Keep uh, keep an eye on antiwar.com slash updates for all the latest bag news out of Iraq. Eh, clock goes too fast. Right back with Mohammed Sihimi right after this, guys. Superior blends of premium coffee. Roasted fresh in Zionsville, Indiana. Darren's coffee satisfies the casual and the connoisseur. Scott Horton Show listeners, visit darrenscoffee.com and use the coupon code SCOTT at checkout for free shipping. darrenscoffee.com because everyone deserves to drink great coffee. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. 
and I host two shows on Liberty.me. Eye on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Here on the Liberty Radio Network, live on the weekdays from noon to 2 Eastern. First up today is our friend Mohammed Sahimi. He is a professor of chemical engineering at USC in L.A. And um, But besides that, he is a great commentator on uh, American-Iranian relations, most especially uh, over the past few years. He's been really great on their nuclear program, the truth about it, the negotiations over it and all of the rest of that. And uh, here he is analyzing the results of the elections uh, that took place what, last Friday or over the weekend. Uh, it's at the Huffington Post. It's called What the Defeat of Iran's Hardliners Means. Welcome back to the show, Mohammed. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me on your program again, Scott. Uh, very happy to have you on, as always. And so, um, well, I guess the question is begging right there, in the title, I think that's the proper use of that phrase, actually, too. Um, the hardliners have been defeated, have they? They have been defeated, and they have been defeated uh, comprehensively because uh, due to the nature of Iranian uh, election electoral process, uh, there is a vetting uh, uh, stage in place where the Guardian Council, which is a constitutional body that vets the candidates, can reject uh, any candidate that it deems uh, uh, unqualified for, for the election. And this Guardian Council is controlled by the hardliners in Iran. And therefore, when the election process be- began about three months ago, uh, after the wedding process, they disqualified at least half of uh, the people who had declared their candidacy. Uh, initially, over 12,000 people uh, registered with the Ministry of Interior to run in the elections, but at the end of the vetting process, they had disqualified something like uh, 6,000 or even more. And most of the people who had been disqualified were moderates and reformists. Uh, the Iranian parliament has 290 members, and uh, reformists had hoped that by uh, sending a large number of candidates to the uh, election process, at least uh, you know uh, a few hundred of them will survive the vetting process, and uh, and therefore they can run uh, in the election. But the Guardian Council disqualified all the well-known candidates of of the uh, of, of the reformists on the excuse that they had supported the Green Movement uh, of uh, 2009 when uh, presidential election was. Uh, was thought to be fraudulent by a large number of people, and there were demonstrations in Tehran. So despite that, uh, the reformists and moderates uh, put together a list of candidates for Tehran and other places and asked people to vote for the least rather than for individuals. In other words, uh, they asked, for example, in Tehran, that sends uh, 30 representatives to the Iranian parliament, they asked people to vote for the least and put all the 30 people in the list as their choice. 
because the list is supported by moderates and reformists. And that's what happened. It sounds almost like the strategy of the hardliners on the Guardian Council excluding all of the leaders of the so-called moderates and reformers, and we can get to defining that in a minute, but it sounds like their strategy of trying to weed out all of the best of them really just kind of backfired and motivated people to turn out for those parties, even if it was lesser-known candidates from those parties. That is a completely correct assessment. The the hope of Hardline was that by weeding out all these well-known reformists and moderates, people would not know whom to uh, uh, vote for, and therefore uh, that would increase the chances of hardliners to win the election. But what happened was the well-known reformist candidate, and on top of them, uh, former uh, reformist president, Mohammed Khatami, they published a list of candidates that they supported and asked people that if they want to support reformists, they should uh, uh, they should vote for the list. So in, in a sense, although this was not sort of a political party or political organization, at least in the uh, normal sense that we understand it here in the West, they basically put some sort of a list that uh, uh, would be appropriate for a political party and ask people to vote, to vote for the party that they support, in this case, the reformists. And the result was that, for example, in Tehran, all the 30 candidates that the reformists and moderates have supported for uh, Tehran representative, they all got elected. And none of the hardliners... Uh, wow. Yes, they, they swept Tehran election. And sweeping Tehran election is very important simply because Tehran is the capital and is the political heart of the country. And as they say in Iran, whoever controls Tehran controls the nation. And therefore, that was that was very uh, very powerful message throughout Iran. Uh, of the 290 members of the parliament, five are uh, set aside for a religious minority, and basically, uh, the other 285 uh, representatives are voted by Iran um, by by the people. So throughout Iran, they they captured moderates and reformists captured about 150 seats. So they have basically have the effective control of the parliament. Now, the result of this would be that uh, it would give a freer hand to the Rouhani administration to pursue both uh, a more moderate uh, foreign policy with the outside world and trying to open up political space in Iran and implement some uh, uh, economical reform program. And um, most importantly, in the view of many people, try to release the leaders of uh, Green Movement from house arrest that they have been handed for, uh, for the last five years. Mm-hmm. So we will see what happens, but uh, there is a clear path now after uh, presidential victory of Hassan Rouhani in 2013, uh, successful completion of nuclear uh, agreement and lifting of the economic sanctions, and now the reformist and moderate candidates' victory in, in the election. So... Uh, Iran is in a much better uh, condition than than it was before. Now, this is not to say that this political system in Iran is not flawed. Of course, it's flawed. Uh, The very fact that uh, candidates are vetted by the uh, Guardian Council and the fact that there is still a lot of governmental organs that are uh, are, uh, controlled by the hardliners means that uh, there are still many impediments to... Uh, making Iran a true democracy, but uh, with this vote, Iranian people have shown that they want change, they want 
uh, gradual change, and they want change that is implemented by themselves within Iran without any outside inter uh, interference and without any outside intervention and without anybody uh, like Western government speaking on their behalf. So we'll see what happens. All right. Now, how much credit would you give to the nuke deal getting done for Rouhani's allies' victory here, I guess? I think that played a very important role because people saw that during the negotiations, uh, the hardliners tried to stop it. The hardliners uh, summoned uh, Rouhani's uh, uh, ministers and particular uh, Mohammad Jawad Zarif, Iran's foreign minister, to the parliament uh, and questioning him. They saw that they tried to impeach some of Rouhani's uh, uh, ministers uh, because of their position regarding a nuclear uh, program and other reforms that he was trying to implement. And uh, most importantly, they saw that Rouhani actually delivered on his promise when he was running for president in 2013. He promised that he would uh, carry out negotiations uh, uh, with the West and in particular with the United States, and he will conclude it uh, successfully if the U.S. is also willing to make concessions and uh, you know, participate in negotiations in good faith. And he delivered on that promise. He made this famous uh, statement that uh, while the centrifuges uh, are spinning, uh, the, the economy must also roll. Right. So he has delivered. All uh, right, now hold it right there. we got to take this break. It's the great Mohammed Sahimi. This one is at the Huffington Post, HuffingtonPost.com, what the defeat of Iran's hardliners means. And we're going to talk more about that part of it when we get back. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. Hey, Al Scott here. The Ciceronian Society is an interdisciplinary group devoted to the timeless themes of place, tradition, and things divine. You are invited to their sixth annual conference to hear two days of papers on important thinkers, from Plato and St. Benedict to John Locke, Hayek, and Henry David Thoreau. The conference is March 10th through 12th in historic Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, less than two hours from D.C. and Baltimore. Register at CiceroneanSociety.com. All right, man, welcome back, you guys. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. On the line with Mohammed Sahimi. This one is in the Huffington Post. What the defeat of Iran's hardliners means. In the first segment, he was explaining how the Guardian Council tried to, which is run by the hardliners, tried to exclude. They have their own primary and caucus system in a way <laughs> where the establishment tries to exclude the guys they don't like. And it didn't work. It backfired. Sort of like American politics right now. The establishment is trying to tamp down on uh, the, the Trump movement, and it ain't working. Um, don't seem to have that same problem on the left. But anyway, um, it didn't work. And in fact, the, the so-called moderates and reformers kicked the right-wingers' butts all across the board in the recent Iranian elections. And uh, so now, two major questions here. What's a moderate and a reformer? Because, boy, are those pretty general terms. Uh, what does that really mean? And obviously, especially in terms of any possible, um, you know, lessening of tensions uh, in the near term uh, between the U.S. and Iran. And then um, 
Also, what difference is it really going to make then that the the president has more support now in the parliament than before? Reformers are those that believe that uh, the constitution of the of the Islamic Republic needs uh, some revision. Uh, they believe that, for example, the vetting process by the Guardian Council uh, must be set aside and people be allowed to, uh, you know, run in, in in the elections if they want to, and people be allowed to. Uh, to uh, vote for anybody they want. Of course, they can vote for anybody they want, but their choices are limited because of the vetting process. They also believe that uh, the constitution of the Islamic Republic, at least in theory, has uh, guaranteed freedom of press, uh, but uh, in in practice, we don't have uh, uh, freedom of press in Iran. We do have outspoken press in Iran. We do have thousands of websites and so on that criticize constantly but uh, whenever the hard runners don't like uh, what they see or what they read, they arrest people who wrote uh, those uh, critics and throw them in jail. So they want they want to end that. And then at the end, uh, once all of these are implemented, then they want to uh, open a national dialogue uh, for revising the constitution, limiting the power of the supreme leader, and transferring almost all power. Uh, to the elected president of the republic. So these are the reformers uh, in, in Iran. And they, they don't want to overthrow the system, but they want to refine it, uh, limit the power of the supreme leader, and actually put in, uh, in effect those um, provisions of the constitution that uh, has spoken about freedom of press, freedom of thought, freedom of uh, uh, practice of religion, and, and so on and so forth. Moderates is, is a relative word. Uh, it is relative to hardliners. A lot of these moderates are actually conservative. They are not leftists or, or reformists. But they, they also believe that the system, as it has been uh, implemented over the past three, three or so decades, is not working, and it needs, uh, it needs uh, uh, some improvement. They also believe that the hardliners' policies, both uh, internally and uh, externally, has hurt Iran, and therefore uh, one needs to moderate the policies. For example, instead of uh, having rhetorics uh, espoused and broadcast uh, about, for example, Saudi Arabia uh, or Syria and so on, uh, the, Iran should pursue diplomatic negotiations so that these crises in the Middle East can be resolved diplomatically, and Iran can live in peace with its neighbors. So, <clears throat> so in that sense, they are allies of, of the reformists, although internally they may not go as far as uh, what the reformists want to do. But mm. these are basically supporters of Rouhani, because Rouhani is not uh, a reformist in the true sense of the word, but he's, he's a moderate, uh, conservative uh, person who wants to uh, improve both the internal situation and the foreign policy. So, uh, in effect, these two groups are allies uh, against hardliners. Mm. And then, so now, what about the state itself? I mean, the assembly is one thing, but the actual departments and the executive branch is another, and that's pretty much all still in the hands of the hard right from the revolutionary days, right? No, the ex- the executive branch of the government is controlled by the president. Uh, 
so in that sense, he has a lot of power because you know the day-to-day affairs of the uh, of the country is is run by the president and his cabinet. Uh, it is not that uh, Rouhani doesn't have power; it is that he can be overruled by the supreme le- leader if he doesn't if he doesn't like what uh, what Rouhani does. But I should mention that even here. Uh, if the president is really pursuing, uh, you know, some uh, reform or, or some more modern policy, and if he has uh, people's backing, as it happened in the Friday elections or the president election of two and a half years ago, he can really pursue those policies to a large extent. For example, in the nuclear negotiations, uh, the Supreme Leader had set some red lines for Iran's negotiators. But Rouhani and his team actually crossed those red lines, and uh, which allowed them, enabled them to successfully uh, uh, complete the negotiations and sign the agreement. So if the president actually is willing to use the public support behind him and argue with the supreme leader, he can make quite advancement uh, in, 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 in the implementation of his, his policies and his program. The revolutionary guards do have a lot of power, but they are what I call uh, the deepest state, just like we have deepest state in, in, in this country. Mm. Uh, they are the deepest state. They are behind the scene power that try to provoke this and that in order to <clears throat> you know, put impediment in, in the path of reformists uh, and moderates uh, and prevent them from, uh, from uh, making, making advancement. Just after the election over the past two, three days, a lot of these uh, Revolutionary Guard officers have spoken against the results of the election. And in particular, they have lamented the fact that in Tehran, not a single hardline uh, candidate was uh, elected to the parliament. Uh, So there is always a a power struggle behind the scene between these hardliners and the deep state that they have behind the scene. And the president, uh, if the president belongs to the reformist uh, moderate camps. Uh-huh. Uh, Ahmadinejad. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. Please finish. I'm sorry. Ahmadinejad, the previous president, he was a he was a hardliner. You know, he was brought to power by the hardliners, and therefore he basically uh, followed whatever they wanted. And the result was that uh, because of the uh, elections of 2009, when a lot of people thought that it was fraudulent. And he was basically uh, imposed on Iran uh, by the Supreme Leader and the Revolutionary Guard, even though people had seemingly voted for the uh, opposition candidate, uh, former Prime Minister Semih Hossein Musavi, he had to increase the repression, he had to be more secretive, and the result was that there was vast corruption during his, his time in office. A lot of national resources were plundered or wasted, and in the foreign policy arena, he also was quite uh, inflexible in negotiations. Iran always wanted to negotiate its nuclear program. Even Ahmadinejad wanted to do that. But the, the problem was that Ahmadinejad was not willing to cross the red line set by the hardliners because he was a hardliner himself, and he was not uh, flexible in negotiating. He was not willing to make any concessions. Rouhani, on the other hand, realized that successful uh, negotiations requires that both sides make concessions. So he, he dared to cross the red line set by the hardliners and the supreme leader in order to uh, have successful negotiations 
VP, uh, VP5 plus so on. So these are the differences between the two camps. And now you say in your article too that um, a, a difference appears to really have been made um, on the uh, – I just had it in front of me – the assembly of experts that gets to choose the successor. And uh, oh, reminding us that the, the current Supreme Leader is old and is reported to at least have had cancer in the past. Yes, absolutely. Because the Assembly of Experts will appoint the next Supreme Leader if Ayatollah Khamenei uh, passes the scene. And most people think that uh, he will not survive the next term of Assembly of Experts. And Assembly of Experts is, uh, is elected for 10 years. So this is quite a long time. And even Khamenei, in his recent speeches, has hinted that uh, he thinks that he won't be around much longer. Therefore, if more moderate clerics get into Assembly of Experts, when it comes to selecting the next Supreme Leader, they will have influence. In particular, uh, former President Rafsanjani, who is now allied to the reformists and moderate, was the highest vote-getters of any elections in Iran on Friday. He got the largest number of votes uh, to go to the Assembly of Experts. That puts him in a very powerful position to be the next chairman of the Assembly. And at the same time, some of his allies also got elected. He published a list of 16 candidates mm. for the Tehran province that, you know, and this and guy, Rafsanjani, is a guy who has a record of trying to work with the Americans, whether they would exactly. respond in kind or not. Exactly. Uh, beside the point. Yeah, yeah he, he had started in, in the 1990s when he was president. He wanted to uh, start working with the United States also. And at that time, in 1995, he awarded this large oil contract to Conoco, the American oil company, as a gesture of, you know, uh, working, uh, reworking, uh, restarting uh, working with the United States. But the Clinton administration not only prevented Conoco from uh, working in Iran, but also imposed total economic sanctions. Ever since, Rastanjani has always advocated you know, uh, compromise and accommodation with the West in order to bring uh, investment into Iran and in order to improve Iran economy. And since Ahmadinejad was elected in 2005, and hard on it, or totally against Rafsanjani. Rafsanjani has increasingly uh, moved towards reformists and moderates, and he's now a firm supporter of these, these groups. The fact that he, his list for the province of Tehran, for Assembly of Experts, got totally elected again. They swept the elections again, just like for the parliament. And the fact that he received the largest number of votes uh, in the election puts him and his allies in a very good position if the time comes for uh, electing the next uh, Supreme Leader. And that bodes well for Iran if that happens. They didn't get everything they wanted, but they succeeded, first of all, to get their list elected and also kick out several uh, important and well-known hardliners from the Assembly, which will help them in the future. Right on. All right. Well, I've kept you over time here, but thanks very much for staying on and uh, doing the show with us today. I really appreciate it, Mohammed. Always uh, great talking to you, Scott. All right, y'all. That is the great Muhammad Sahimi again, a professor of chemical engineering at USC and a great analyst of American-Iranian relations and obviously internal Iranian politics as well. Uh, this one is at the Huffington Post, what the defeat of Iran's hardliners means. And it's actually running today or was it yesterday on antiwar.com. You can find it there as well. We'll be right back with Peter Van Buren after this.
Hey, Al Scott here. First, I want to take a second to thank all the show's listeners, sponsors, and supporters for helping make the show what it is. I literally couldn't do it without you. And now I want to tell you about the newest way to help support the show. Whenever you shop at Amazon.com, stop by ScottHorton.org first and just click the Amazon logo on the right side of the page. That way, the show will get a kickback from Amazon's end of the sale. It won't cost you an extra cent. And it's not just books. Amazon.com sells just about everything in the world except cars, I think. So whatever you need, they've got it. Just click the Amazon logo on the right side of the page at ScottHorton.org or go to ScottHorton.org slash Amazon. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show, here on LRN. All right, McClatchy says at least 2,079 Clinton emails contain classified material. Washington Post says Justice Department grants immunity to staffer who set up Clinton email server. Although it says in here that they don't know of any grand jury actually impaneled, but maybe that's changing. Fox News says spy agencies say Clinton emails closely matched top-secret documents, and Peter Van Buren at Antiwar.com says that's a problem. Welcome back to the show, Peter. How are you doing? Oh, it's a pleasure, Scott. Uh, y'all, Peter Van Buren, he was in the State Department for many years, and including in Iraq, and he wrote the book We Meant Well, and that's the name of his blog as well. This one is reprinted at Antiwar.com slash blog. Again, intel agencies, Clinton emails match top-secret documents. So, you know what? I think my... Kind of previous, maybe, conception of this was, yeah, it's just another one of them fake scams. They never go after them about the real stuff. It's, you know, get away with Cambodia, but get them for Watergate, something like that. But then again, I don't know. Watergate was a crime. So uh, just how bad is this email scandal? Is it actually a thing? It is, and it is for, for several reasons. The, the most significant reason is that Hillary Clinton wants to be and has a very good chance of being the next president of of the United States. People who throw themselves into that contest are asking to be judged. And one of the things we, uh, what's left of the people, need to judge is that person's judgment, their honesty, their sincerity, and how they make decisions. Because so much of what the president does happens behind closed doors, for better or worse, and we have to entrust them with so much uh, of our daily life. So you've got to look beyond their, their talking points, look beyond their, their canned statements, and, and look to their actions. Most of these candidates, Hillary in particular, have a very long history, and we need to kind of parse that out and decide what kind of person we may be voting for. In this case, it's a person who clearly, through national security out the window, for her personal convenience. That's not someone I want in the White House. All right, but you know what? Uh, TV says that that's all overblown because what we're talking about is apparently a bunch of stuff that got retroactively declassified, and ain't that just like a bunch of Republicans to make a big deal about someone going back ex post facto and saying you shouldn't have sent that email you sent? That's not fair, Peter. What about that? Well, it has to be true if you use Latin like ex post facto because that, that's like lawyer stuff, right? Article 1, Section 9, right? Oh, wow. Okay. 
I'm, I'm intimidated. But while I recover from that, let me uh, talk a little bit about classification and retroactive classification. The idea is, is that classification is not a stamp on a document, as you see on, on TV. Um, it is what the contents of that particular document represent, which is often expressed with a level of classification applied. But in a government system, the lowest level, if you will, is unclassified. In other words, every document within the government has a classification level. One of them might be unclassified, and documents are labeled as such. If I was still working at the State Department, and, and miraculously you were too, Scott, and I sent you an email across the office saying, hey, let's go to lunch, that document would be marked unclassified automatically by, by the system because we'd be using an unclassified system. When you go to Clinton World and you're using a private server, then it's much more like you and I emailing over our Gmail accounts. There's no uh, classification marked because it's Gmail. And so what's happened with Hillary's stuff is that unless one of her correspondents was stupid enough to say, hey, I'm about to break the law by marking this classified and sending it in an unclassified system, um, of course none of her documents are going to have a marking on them. But that doesn't change the underlying information. And so she's lying about that. When we talk about retroactive classification in the Clinton uh, context here, what we're actually talking about is restoring the classification in most cases. In other words, the document began life as a secret document that originated, say, at the CIA. Someone on Clinton's team retyped contents of it into an unclassified email and sent it. When the government took another look at it uh, last month, they said, holy crap, we can't release that. It's really secret. It always was. So we will restore the classification. That's so it's it. not that they cut off the stamp at the top and uh, when they faxed it or some kind of thing here, right? You're saying they just, they would, and not maybe copy and paste just sections over that way. Yep. Or, or we're talking about documents maybe generated by the State Department staff themselves where it never would get a classified or classified stamp on in the first place. To a certain extent, all of the above. Um, there's no physical connection between the classified and unclassified systems. You simply cannot cut and paste or email from one to the oh, other. So it'd they, have to be retyped from someone looking at the other screen kind of thing. I see. You know, it's, it's called sneaker net. Um, you basically print out the document on the classified system and then you type in the parts that you want to send in the unclassified so system. So just to be, just to make sure I understand you here. What they would do, you're saying this is what they're doing, but they're using this as their excuse. Look, it doesn't say secret or top secret on it. That's and, correct. And that's the best defense that they have for what is what amounts to actually a confession, in a sense. Absolutely. The idea would be is let's say I had a, uh, a list of all of the undercover CIA operatives around the world in alphabetical order, and I neglected to write ultimate top secret on it and I just dropped it on the ground, and you picked it up. It, the underlying information is controlling. The fact that there, for whatever reason, isn't something, a marking on there that says top secret, does not change the fact that I've just disclosed a list of worldwide CIA undercover operatives. Mm -hmm. And that's the case with, with, with Clinton. Somebody retyped information because she wanted it, on her unclassed system, which allowed her to use her iPad and her BlackBerry and all those other things that are not available uh, 
in, in classified form because they're just simply too vulnerable. Um, they just retyped it for her, and that saved her the inconvenience of having to work with uh, an, a clumsy, you know, a clumsy system, the classified system, because security is clumsy to work with. But let me just swing back very quickly mm-hmm. to retroactively classified because such a thing, in fact, does exist. The government can, in fact, retroactively classify something, and the, the case has actually gone as far as the Supreme Court, a whistleblower for the TSA named Robert McLean, who we may have talked about uh, some time ago, um, was actually thrown out of his job for passing unclassified information to a reporter, which was later classified, and he was punished as if it was classified from the beginning. So retroactive classification does exist, but it's not an excuse. The idea would be that Hillary still would be prosecutable even if the information truly was retroactively classified. And one more lie that the Clinton people are are trying to go to lunch with, and and that is this idea that it's possible to fight inside the government about classification. Um, Not really, because the rule is that the originating agency, the people who create the information, set the classification level. If you're in the CIA, you can fight as much as you want inside the CIA, but when the document emerges and gets sent over to the State Department and it's marked secret or it's marked confidential, that's it. The State Department can't simply decide on its own to change that. And so all these, all this, forgive me, BS about that, that well, state and CIA don't agree or Washington is having its usual in the Beltway arguments, again, is simply a lie. The question for us is, no matter how bullish the Clintons are about fooling the public and fooling the mainstream media, the FBI knows how these rules work. The question then becomes, will she be, she or any of her people, be prosecuted, indicted, punished, or called out in in any way? She can't BS them the way she does the public, but on the other hand, they've got to take action for this to matter. Well, and of course, it's a political decision, not a legal one, whether she'll yes. be prosecuted. So that goes without saying. Let me ask you one more thing here real quick. Um, am I right? Is it obvious? Am I, am I wrong in what seems obvious to me? Is there better explanations than they did this because they wanted to be able to destroy stuff later? They didn't want it to be in the hands of anybody but themselves. And that was why they set it up. You referenced they, well, she wanted to be able to use her Blackberry and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So that makes sense too, that it was mostly about her own freedom of action in a way. But then I, I believe they said, Peter, that there are 30,000 missing emails that she claims are all private and most of them with yep. Bill, even though he says he's only used to email twice in his whole life. So, um, did they recover those 30,000? And am I wrong in just assuming that the reason that they set the server up at her house was for the purposes of deleting 30,000 emails later before she ran for president? The purpose of the server was, was multifold and certainly predominant in, in Clinton's mind was the ability to shield all this stuff from FOIA requests and to maintain, t- <clears throat> excuse me, total control over the information. So as you said, they can simply delete uh, what they, they don't want to, to ever make public, and that is what happened here. The emails that the State Department are releasing right now are highly curated. The Clinton team, including her lawyers, turned over only emails to the State Department that they wanted to, claiming the others were uh, personal and had nothing to do with work. And if you believe that, well... Well, but um, wasn't there a story where the FBI says, yeah, right, we, we hacked your hard drive and we found them all, or no? 
No, the FBI has been extremely quiet about what they know and what they don't know. Um, as most of your, your, as most people know and your tech people certainly know, there are many different ways of deleting something uh, off your computer. Um, some of them are basically not deletions at all. You know, when you just hit the delete key, it's still on your computer somewhere. There are levels of wiping a, a server clean that can extend to, to physically destroying the disks and that are, that are essentially unrecoverable at some level. Right. So the server that's now in the FBI's possession was cleaned at some level. The question is whether it was cleaned to the point where the resources of the FBI cannot access what was on there originally. It's possible to do, but whether it was done or not, we, we simply don't know. Um, there's so, so forget about criminality for a second. Though I mean, obviously it's huge that a potential candidate or the president of the United States is uh, a criminal. But just ask yourself, is this the level of judgment that we all want uh, in the White House? Do we really want... You remember the old Charlie Brown uh, cartoon, Pigpen, the character Pigpen? Sure. Um, he walked around in a cloud of, of dust um, all the time. And that's essentially what Hillary is right now. She's got this these clouds of dust swirling around her. And she's going to walk into the White House with them, assuming that she's not indicted previously. And is that really what we want for four years or, or eight years? Is all of this stuff swirling around, um, never concluded, wondering what the Russians and the Chinese know? Because they may, in fact, have access to far more of the emails than, than you and I will ever see. Um, wondering what they know, wondering how that limits uh, Hillary's dealings with them, wondering if someone who displayed such poor judgment um, really can be entrusted with even more of America's secrets and even more decisions that affect all of our lives. I don't think so. All right, so that's Peter Van Buren, formerly with the State Department, obviously knows what he's talking about. Read him at wemeantwell.com, and this one is also on the blog at antiwar.com. Intel agencies, Clinton emails, match top secret documents. Thanks. Always a pleasure, Scott. Take care. You hate government, one of them libertarian types, or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. All right, y'all. Welcome back. So, yeah, sorry, he was in a hurry, so um, I kept him into the break there so I could let him go. Uh, Peter Van Buren, formerly of the State Department, wemeantwell.com, and this one again is at antiwar.com slash blog. Intel agencies, Clinton emails, match top secret documents. So my last question was about, I think this was after we were into the break or just going into the break there, was am I right that 
she made this server in the first place to cover up. And he had mentioned, well, she wanted to be able to use her BlackBerry and have this freedom of action and that kind of thing. That makes sense to me. But uh, it seemed like the reason they would have done it in the first place is because she wanted to run for president later and she was very wary of having a permanent record of her tenure as Secretary of State. Same reason Karl Rove had his own separate email servers, right? Um, to cover up. And, and he agreed that, yes, that was a huge part of it. And then um, he said that we don't know. Oh, I followed up about, but I thought I'd heard that they had recovered all of the emails, not and including the 30,000 that Clinton and her staff and lawyers said were private and not to be released. And he said, no, they've been very tight-lipped about that. And, of course, there are different ways to delete something. Um and of course, you could write ones and zeros. You could set the disk on fire and everything, you know, in between there. So we don't know just how wiped those servers were before the FBI or after the FBI got their hands on them. So um, that was pretty much that. And then his real point was he says, you know, she's like Pigpen. She's got this cloud of filth all around her all the time. And he was a nice kid in the cartoon, but we get the metaphor. And this is who we want. A president where we don't know whether she just gave up four years worth of secrets directly to the Russians, the Chinese, and the French, and the Iranians, and whoever else felt like tapping her home server for one thing, unresolvable scandal, uh, simply because she's on a political level, just to start with simply because she's on the political level too high to prosecute. Which was good. And that's where we stopped. All right, so that was Peter Van Buren. Coming up next is Nick Giambruno about this craziness about outlawing cash and uh, and negative interest rates. Man, i got to figure out how to get in on the gravy train part of that somehow, right? How much money do I have to have to incorporate as a bank? All right. Um, all right. So, yeah, anyway. Um, little time. Important things to cover. Um, man, check this out. I'm going to interview this dude. I'm not going to talk too much about it, but I am going to tell you about it. It's at A-E-O-N, Aeon.co. Is that how you say that? Aeon, like Aeon Flux? Am I right? Am I wrong? I don't know, man. I don't know. But I admit it. A-E-O-N dot C-O. But anyway, it doesn't matter because here's what you Google. The New Mind Control by Robert Epstein. The New Mind Control by Robert Epstein. I think we talked about this on the show back when the first part of the story came out. Now it's a much longer story. You can skip the first seven paragraphs or so, by the way. I think they're needless and... Uh, an editor is needful in this situation. But anyway, the story is about, did you see this? Did you hear about this? Do you remember this story, guys, where they did an experiment on search engine rankings and how they could sway people's choices about very important decisions like which candidates they like best, etc. By huge margins, huge margins, Simply by Google ranking, mock Google ranking. Well, the thing is, you know, social science means not really science. It's not really science. But 
it's an attempt to use scientific type controls to test and experiment and see what kind of results you get on average. So in a way, it's it's interesting. And point one, well, I am going to spoil it for you now. I'm going to try to get the guy on the show. But anyway, point one, Google is almost a total monopoly. 85-something percent of searches in America go through Google. We use Google as a verb, means to look something up on the Internet. Simple as that. And we use Google to Google stuff. And so they did this test where they made their own little make-believe Google. And they manipulate the search rankings. And they start out doing it with a race in Australia where you don't know anything about the people. You're kind of non-committed, you know, kind of deal. Start from nothing. Anyway, the point is they did the experiment all different ways. And they proved that because people only click on the first couple of choices uh, and never see anything below that, that Google has the power to sway an election, no problem. No problem. And do it in a way where you won't even know they're doing it to you. And they've already showed it. And they've already showed that the corporate leadership of Google is betting on Hillary Clinton. And anyway, uh, it ain't kookery, man. It's something to take a look at. It just kills me that people are that easy to manipulate. You know, I don't know. I always use more specific keywords when I'm looking for something than, gee, I don't know, tell me what candidate to like. People have any principles at all? Anyway, no, they don't. Stand for nothing, fall for anything. That's the deal. Uh, but it's a really important article. I really hope you'll read it. And yes, it's overly long, but you know, maybe skip the first boring part and get to the good stuff. It's called how the internet flips elections and alters our thoughts. Oh, that's the subtitle. The new mind control, the new mind control by Robert Epstein. Check that out. And then here's another, uh, hope to is Sarah Lazare. They have this thing, the gray zone project, which I think can be basically characterized as progressive Jews sticking up for Muslims. Thank God. Max Blumenthal and Sarah Lazare and others over at Alternet, alternet.org. And this one's called, The FBI has a new plan to spy on high school students across the country. I swear to God. You know what? You wouldn't even believe me if I told you this stuff. Even in 2016, this is just unbelievable to me that they would go this far. They would go this far, really? I mean, seriously, man, you gotta read it. It's just, yeah. And then, you know, make sure to zip up your kid's backpack and send them off to government school again. Well, what are my other choices? You might ask rhetorically. <clears throat> Expecting no answer. The FBI has a new plan to spy on high school students across the country. It's the Gray Zone Project at Alternet. And uh, it's mind-blowing. You know, FBI. Man, it really is like something out of a movie. It's crossing the line. That's what I'm trying to get at. It's crossing the line. Okay. Oh, I also wanted to point out the story where um, Roger Ailes, that runs Fox News, openly admitted that, uh, you know, in context, out of context, that they've been really back in Rubio. And he says, guys, it's time to stop back in Rubio. We've been trying to back them, but it's not working. It's time to call that off. 
<laughs> anyway, and just in a way, oh, whoops, did I just say that out loud? Where I'm announcing to everyone that got a stake in this game. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. All right, you guys. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Next up is Nick Giambruno. He is the senior editor at Doug Casey's Casey Research. Internationalman.com. Welcome back to the show, Nick. How are you doing? Oh, I forgot to hit the goddamn button, everybody. You know, I should pay better attention to what I'm doing. Well, whatever. That's a live show. That's hey, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, yeah. You're fine. I just forgot to hit the button was the only reason I couldn't hear you. Uh, oh, great. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks for having me. You know, I think that's the first time I've actually ever done that particular screw-up where I forgot to even call. A lot of times oh. I might forget to turn the, you know, hit the button on the board here, but that's different. Anyway, uh, <laughs> happy to have you back on the show, and I like the title of this, Revealed, The Hidden Agenda of Davos. 2016 and uh you know i don't know if it was even on c-span i didn't get a chance to try to watch uh any of these um you know self-appointed rulers of the world up there uh giving their speeches but you seem to think that uh well you seem pretty certain that there's a lot more going on than what they admit to the cameras anyway yes and here's the evidence for it um and i just decided to connect the dots after i got a flood of articles from the New York Times, The Economist, uh, Zero Hedge, other other publications, all of a the sudden there is this big uh, acceleration in, in this call to uh, eliminate cash or eliminate high denomination currency notes. And I, and I decided to put the pieces of the puzzle together and the timing of this, and it all uh, goes back to this January 2016 conference in Davos. And uh, if your listeners aren't familiar, it, this is a uh, conference that happens every year where uh, it, it happens in the open. This is not some sort of secret meeting or anything like that. It, it, every, people who are leaders in uh, in business, in government, in media, um, even some celebrities go go to these events and they and they talk about the issues of the day. Um, some of the meetings do actually happen behind closed doors, but it's not the, the actual event itself is, is out in the open. But if you look at uh, the events that happen during and after this, it's, it's quite striking. So um, I hadn't seen anybody really put it together in a timeline, so I, I thought I'd do it myself. And it, I think it really paints a compelling picture. So, for example, um, you know, the financial world was shocked a few weeks ago when Japan decided to take uh, its interest rates negative for the first time ever. Um, and this came after the head of the Japanese Central Bank had repeatedly uh, denied that he even was planning to do this. Well, he went out to this uh, Davos conference um, in late January, and he came back a few days later, and he 
implemented negative interest rates. Okay, well, that's, that's you know, looks like something might have changed his mind at that conference, but it was hardly an isolated incident. You have a bunch of other other related events that happened. You have the CEO of uh, Deutsche Bank calling for the elimination of cash. You have Norway's biggest bank um, essentially doing the same thing. And then you have the editorial board of Bloomberg uh, call, you know, the, the title was Bring on the Cashless Future. And, you know, you can imagine what that the, the thrust of that article was. Financial Times had a, had a piece that came out very similar. Um, and then Harvard jumped on board and put out a, a, a paper talking about the need to eliminate high denomination notes like the $100 bill and the 500 euro note. Um, and, and, you know, over and over, we see, see a lot of this, but it all really started to accelerate you know at it just went into overdrive after after this davos meeting um i can't conclusively prove it but i think there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that points in that direction and in fact you even say that they admit that they have very private meetings there you know along with their very public ones too they do and that part of it isn't a secret just what happens at the secret meeting is (laughs) Precisely, and that's that's out in the open. It's in the BBC and another other. Uh, All right. So your your yeah. point is very well taken here. That and this sounds like crankery. I you know whoever heard of negative interest rates and outlawing cash? It sounds like kind of a fringe thing. You're countering that by saying we're talking about the most powerful people in the world or their representatives in media and, and their lackeys in government are the ones proposing this. This is something to take very seriously. And, and we'll get to all the reasons why, uh, which I know you're good at explaining as well. Oh, but, can I just stop you for a second? Sure. Uh, you don't have to take my word at it. Take their word at it. Well, um, that's what I, I'm saying yeah. is, yeah, you're <laughs> citing, you know, all of these um, all of these sources to show these are the most powerful people saying this. Um but so my question is this. If the banks rule everything, and especially the nation states, then why are they allowing the government to engage in this policy that seems like it's tailor-made to destroy their business, to force all of their depositors to take their money right out of the bank then? You're going to charge me money just for having it sit there and pay me not just no interest, but actually, and not just all your fines and fees, you nickel and dime me to death, you banker bastards. But now you're going to give me negative interest rates too? Then isn't that on the, just the face of it, Nick, horrible for the banks? And why would they tolerate this insane policy? It is horrible for the banks. And they would tolerate it because that's not the end of the story. The other, the other uh, component of this, the the evil uh, twin brother of negative interest rates is the war on cash. Um, the people who are pushing negative interest rates are fully are fully aware of this. So, um, you know, if if interest rates are negative in the situation you d- just described, well, a lot of people would rather take the money out of the bank and put it under the mattress than suffer, um, you know, basically a penalty or a tax on saving money. I mean, how in the heck are you going to save for retirement <laughs> with negative interest rates? So they, the, the um, economic central planners know this, and that's why the war on cash has been really ramped up kind of in tandem with the spread of negative interest rates uh, around the world. So here's the thing. If people start withdrawing money from the banks, the banking system is very fragile. Most people don't don't even put a thought into this, but thanks to the fractional reserve banking system, there's not a lot of cash at the banks, whether that exists in digital form or in paper form. So if people start pulling money out of the banks in mass, it do, it won't take much to bring the whole thing down. So 
their solution is to make accessing cash harder and in some cases illegal. I mean, if you look at various countries around Europe, France, for example, uh, it is now illegal to do cash transactions over a thousand euros without, you know, documenting it properly. Um, and this, this, they're just doing all of these things that make it more, more and more inconvenient or flat out illegal to use cash. Um, and that has the effect of keeping the cash in the banking system. So that, that makes the banks happy in that they don't have to worry about bank runs because there's no bank run if you can't withdraw your cash. Um, so I think that's the, uh, that's the answer to your question. Yeah. Well, man, is anybody besides you making the privacy argument here too that, uh, I think you cite Ron Paul here saying, geez, this is the IRS's dream come true. I mean, this is, I like, it's kind of a joke to me, but still, the point is made, I think. This is the slavery of Satan right out of the book of Revelations, you know? This is the worst slavery could possibly be, where nobody could buy or sell anything to anyone without it going on their permanent record. Oh, yeah, it's it's truly uh, horrifying, and you don't necessarily need to be a, a religious person to, to see that either. Um, but yes, this is this is what it's what it's coming to. And, uh, you know, it's it's the government's dream. And what are they how do they justify it? I mean, it's completely ridiculous. And anybody who can, uh, you know, think critically and independently can see right through this. You know, they're saying, oh, well, terrorists use cash and drug dealers use cash. So we have to get rid of it or make it harder to use. Yeah, what are you um, trying to hide from us, Nick? <laughs> yeah, um, but no, I think I think people, and you know, it's unfortunate, but most people uh, don't remember how privacy is really an aspect of a fun, it's you know it's a fundamental human right. It's it's necessary to keep uh, human dignity, and it's it's necessary in a free society. And unfortunately, a lot of people have forgotten that. All right, y'all, hold it right there. We'll be right back with Nick Giambruno. From internationalman.com. Hey, y'all. Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I'm on the line with Nick Giambruno, which I'm sorry, man. I'm sure I'm probably pronouncing that pretty badly. No, you got it right. Yeah? No? Okay, cool. All right. That's uh, Casey Research, international man. He is a senior editor there. How a witch doctor convinces everyone he's a neurosurgeon. That's one. You know, I got a story like that, but I'll save it. Um, reveal the hidden agenda of Davos 2016 and the world's first cashless society. These are all important articles for you to read at internationalman.com. And now, Nick, so here's the thing, man, is I'm not an international man and an investment advisor, and I just don't understand these things. You're going to have to make me understand. These guys' idea is that they want to make reverse interest rates. Not only are they paying you almost nothing to keep your money in your account, but they're going to punish you for keeping money in your account. But then they're going to blackmail you into keeping your money into in your in the bank account anyway by trying to outlaw cash and make it impossible for you to take out well bills large enough to do anything important with. But then so doesn't that completely defeat the whole point of doing the negative interest rates in the first place, which is this this stupid policy of trying to stimulate the economy by forcing people to spend the money? 
Well, no, they'll just spend the money uh, through electronic means that are tracked, controlled, and taxed uh, to the maximum. So that's what they'll do there. Um, they're counting you. on people to not just sit there. They're, you know, if you have a thousand bucks in the bank and you lose fifty bucks a year or five, you know, fifty bucks a year, you're gonna you're gonna spend it. And you know, especially if you extrapolate that. So the for point a isn't amount. whether you're keeping your money at the bank. The point is whether you're spending your money through the bank and using yeah. their card to do it, et cetera, like that. Oh, sure, because then yeah. it's then you know, um, just think of the information that's available uh, to them there. It's. It's it's really uh, you know the not just the uh, IRS's dream it's the NSA's dream too. Uh, well, sure, and you know it's funny, man. For me, and uh, I know I guess it probably sounds stupid, but I was so paranoid about this kind of thing back in like 1994 that I was completely done being concerned about it, <laughs> like 10 years ago or more. Um, <laughs> but now here it is again. The idea that you're really going to have no choice but to always, every time you buy anything, it has to be on the record, or else you're basically, you know, giving probable cause for a full-scale investigation of what it is that you're up to. Um, you know, reducing anybody who wants to be slightly free to a barter economy and poverty. Um, but here it is. Seems like that's what they're going for. Well, the good news is, is they haven't won yet, and there is some hopeful. Uh, signs here, and in in a couple of cases, we've seen counter editorials in big newspapers like the Wall Street Journal just come out and say that this is ridiculous, and you know make the same criticisms that you and I would make. But unfortunately, among the uh, opinion makers and you know the uh, economists at these publications, it's it's a minority opinion. But you know there is some resistance to it, and they haven't completely done. Uh, you know, gone forward with some of these ideas yet. We can still use the $100 bill. You know, we can still use cash, but the moment it's clear to see where the momentum is going. So the good news is, is there's still uh, time to fight this and there's still time to take action to protect yourself. And I think it's very simple how to protect yourself. The way to win the war on cash is to own gold and silver, physical gold and silver within your uh, possession. Those are uh, forms of money that are not going to be susceptible to negative interest rates and, and so forth. So, uh, you know, and they're accepted anywhere in the world. You take a gold coin anywhere in the world and they'll recognize its value, whether it's Canada, North Korea, Mexico, anywhere in Europe. It's, it's, it's recognized around the world. So I think it's really going to push people into precious metals. Yeah. Well, and then so there's possibilities for bubbles even in the metals then when it comes down to it, right? I, I think I think so. You know, we'll have to see how this plays out over the next few years. But another thing to mention is that just for them to consider such a radical and extreme thing as banning cash and, and you know, trumpeting it in all of these publications and in Harvard – uh, and so forth. It, it, I think it shows they're desperate. This is this is not a, a move they would consider uh, if they were confident in their in the economy and their grip on the economy. Yeah. I think it's I think it's a sign of desperation. And another thing too is that there's a, there's another uh, sort of psychological component to this war on cash. Well, I forgot to mention this earlier in the program. A few weeks after this Davos conference. Uh, Monopoly, the, the, the game, you know, the classic game that people would play, uh, you know, where you have cash and you buy properties and so forth. Well, they announced that Monopoly will no longer feature cash. You're going to have a bank card 
when you decide to buy Baltic Avenue or, or something like that, or the railroads. <laughs> so it's, it's also, there's a psychological component, you know, they're trying to push people into getting used to not using cash anymore. And I think that is certainly part of it. Yeah. Well, and, um, you can certainly see how it's the basis for a total police state where, you know, I knew an old hippie lady who had once dated a weed grower out in California or something, and she had sued and gotten her FBI file, and it was huge, and they'd been following her to the store and following her to all her friends' houses and this and that. We're talking like 1968 or whatever, 72 or I don't know, back in old days. But the thing is, all they got to do to compile that kind of you know FBI file level investigation of anyone at any time is the stroke of a key, because it's all already pre-investigated itself and laid itself right down on the record so they just type in your name and hit enter and here's everything we know about nick from every database we have access to which is a hell of a lot yeah well i think there's a there's another edge to that story too technology can definitely aid uh the state in in that kind of stuff but technology is also a very good thing for the individual um we look at things like bitcoin uh encryption uh, and all sorts of these all these distributed technologies, 3D printing. So I think it's I think it's a tug of war. I don't think it's I don't think the outcome is certain. I I, I don't think uh, it's it's completely hopeless. Um, and I just look at you know for example BitTorrent, and they have tried to shut down BitTorrent for over 15 years. And I you know anybody can still go on and get whatever they want on BitTorrent. So I think there is a ray of hope that you know they they can't shut these things down. Um, and, you know, we'll see if they're able to really push us towards a cashless uh, society and are successful at that. Well, that would be a big victory for the bad guys. So let's hope that doesn't happen. Yeah. And, you know, um, it's cool, too, about the technology that, uh, well, for one example, and I know there's more, you mentioned Bitcoin, but uh, one of my favorites, and I'm not just being, I hope, a hollow shill here, but I really mean it, is the commodity disk where uh, my friend Arlo Pignotti got these silver coins, and they're embedded with a QR code where you just scan it with your phone, and it'll take you immediately to the website and tell you the instant spot price. So at any time, if you want to you whip out that gold or silver coin, as you talked about, that you could take with you you know, any place in America or any place in the world, not only that, you can scan it with your phone and tell them exactly what it's worth right now on the market uh, when you're exchanging it. And that kind of thing, it's, it seems like that kind of thing makes, you know, cash and all, you know, the bank, uh, digits obsolete. Why do we need them at all when we can trade gold and silver coins with each other and know exactly what they're trading for at any moment? Well, I think, yeah, you hit the nail on the head here and that the solution is to not restrict options for people, uh, to choose what kind of money they'd like to use, but to, Take away those restrictions. Let the market decide what kind of money people would want to. Get rid of these ridiculous legal tender laws that force you to use Federal Reserve notes and, and really let the, the people vote with their, with their money. And I think if we did that, it's, it's clear that um, we, we would see some alternative forms, whether it's gold, silver, or some sort of uh, mix between a cryptocurrency and a, uh, and a commodity currency, like gold or silver, uh, come, into, come into being. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know everything in the world about Bitcoin. I know there's a lot of great things about it, and I don't know if it's Bitcoin or something else, but it certainly points the way toward peer-to-peer -to -peer making Citigroup and J.P. Morgan Chase absolutely obsolete. I mean, what could they possibly do other than fleece me? Why would I want to do business with them ever when I can just send money direct?
Oh, absolutely. That's a wonderful thing because these big banks are are at this point just appendages of of the U.S. government. They're not uh, entities of of free market of the free market. They're entities of of crony capitalism and economic fascism. So anything that does away with them, uh, the better. All right, y'all. That is Nick Giambruno. He writes for Doug Casey's group. It's internationalman.com, Casey Research. And this one is the world's first cashless society is here, the totalitarian's dream come true, and revealed the hidden agenda of Davos 2016. Thanks very much for coming back on the show, Nick. Good to talk to you. Anytime, Scott. All right, y'all. That's it for the show today. See you all tomorrow. Thanks.